Thank you there. Good morning to you. You guys doing okay? Everybody's looking wonderful. We're glad you're here today to study God's Word. Not only get into the Word, but let the Word get into us. Amen. Uh, let's get a Bible in your hands if you need one. We can get right to it. Just raise your hand if you need a Bible. And then a usher will find you and equip you with the Word of God. We always encourage you to follow along with us. And today we're going to take our Bibles and we're going to turn in them to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at two chapters today, verses 30, or chapters 31 and uh, 32 uh, in a message that I've entitled, A Future and a Hope. And so with that, let's take our hearts uh, to the Lord. And uh, yeah, you can pull me back just a little bit, Jonah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much just for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you so much, Lord, for, for being with us and ministering to us. And we pray that you continue to give us ears to hear you, Lord, and that we would have wills that are ready to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably somewhere between the two. Thank you. <laughs> I was, whoop. Guys, how easy is it to lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ? I tell you what, trials come upon us, tough times and turbulent seasons, and we can begin to wonder, God, where are you at in all of this? Now, sometimes we're in situations that we bring upon ourselves. You know, we've made poor decisions. The harvest begins to come home and we find ourselves in a desperate way. I find myself saying it from time to time when it comes to the flesh. Everyone loves sowing the seeds, but no one likes the harvest. But don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Now, other times we may find ourselves in a season of, of pruning or of purifying. You know, God may be clipping back those parts of our lives that are unfruitful. Why? That we might bring forth even more fruit. Or maybe he's placed us in a purifying furnace. The heat is on. We're being melted down, as it were, that he might just begin to scoop up and, and discard the, the dross and the impurities of our lives. Still other times there may be nothing out of order in our lives, but the enemy is harassing us, the enemy is attacking us, and we're in that place of just simply having to rely on the fact that God takes what the enemy means for evil, and somehow and in some way he turns it for our eternal good and his eternal glory. But ultimately what we need to realize and understand and take heart and hope in is the fact that through it all, God's heart is not against us, it is for us. He has thoughts of peace toward us and not of evil to give us a future and a hope. But when you're in those seasons of stress or duress or there's pressure being placed upon you, where do you turn or to whom do you turn for help in your time of need? Now, I want you to think about that because I'm not asking for the right answer. I'm asking for the real answer. Now, if the real answer and the right answer are one and the same, then praise, praise the Lord, yeah? But it's so easy to fall back on the familiar when we're in that season of struggle rather than turning toward or drawing comfort or strength from, relying upon the Lord. 
And that was Judah's dilemma here in chapter 31. You, you maybe remember, quick reminder, the Assyrian army quickly encroaching upon the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Jerusalem, placing them understandably in a panic. And so they did what would seem to make sense. They reached out to the nation of Egypt. This nation was larger. It was stronger. It was more abled militarily uh, to help them. And so it just seemed to make sense. The problem, however was that they did not seek the Lord in any form or any fashion. And as we, if you remember, read in verse 1 of the previous chapter, they took counsel, but not of God. They devised plans, but not of His Spirit. And family, I would remind you that though you are in the world, you are no longer of the world. And therefore, you approach things unlike you did before uh, when you were in the world. When you were in the world, God, or uh, prayer, was a last resort, if a resort at all. In Christ, we don't go to God if all else fails. Uh, he's the one we turn to and, and trust in first, yes? And so with that, let's take and turn our attention to the first verse of the 31st chapter of the book of Isaiah, where we read, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Now again, because chapters 30 and 31 are kind of connected, allow me to refresh your memory. Last week, Isaiah charged Israel or Judah with adding sin to sin. The sin of not trusting in the Lord and add to that they were trusting in Egypt. You know, they felt like they could trust the words of the Egyptians, the strength of the Egyptians, but not the word of God, not the strength of God. You know, perhaps they were not too unlike we are. They felt like their problem was a, was a practical one. It wasn't a spiritual one. And they could see very, they could find very practical reasons to trust in Egypt. I mean, he says it right here. They have chariots, which are many. They have horsemen, which are very strong. But guys, I just don't see how seeking God or trusting God brings about a practical solution here. And we do this, don't we? Uh, somehow, when the chips are down, we can tend to forget all about God's past faithfulness, how He's delivered His time and time again, and we fall back on that familiar rationale, those ways of the world. Guys, let's remember that Egypt in Scripture also serves, though a very real, very uh, material and practical place, it also serves as a type of the world or a type of the flesh. It, it points us back to those previous days, we, I, I call them our B.C. days, right? Before Christ that came into our lives and saved us and delivered us. And so it points kind of back to that perspective. And so I don't want you to get this twisted and think that God is simply against you uh, you know, seeking help from anyone with anything at any time. That's simply not true. We're grateful that God has given us advancements in medicine, yes? Advancements in technology and all the rest. The principle at hand here is that God does not want us 
Guys, when the pressure is on, when we're under that stress or that, that duress, or any time for that matter, to resort to worldly ways rather than trusting in Him. There someone is, right? And they're struggling with anxiety, let's say. And I mean, there's a real battle on their hands. Now, this person is a believer, but this is a real struggle. The question that confronts us is then, how do they handle it? Do they turn to any old therapist or psychiatrist? Or maybe you eat your feelings, you know, you've heard that. Uh, do you decompress through shopping or mainlining to some game console, you know? Maybe you turn to drugs or alcohol or some illicit relationship. Maybe just try to sleep it off. People just try to sleep it off. And guys, I'm not saying that each and every one of those things in and of themselves are necessarily bad. Some obviously are. Uh, you know, I would never recommend a, a secular or ungodly counselor to counsel a godly individual. That doesn't make any sense. I would never recommend drugs or alcohol or illicit relationships and the like. But you want to go to the mall, go to the mall. You want to play a game, knock yourself out. You want to get some exercise. You want to get a good night's rest. There's just nothing wrong. Those, there's nothing wrong with those things. But the question is, are they God's way of dealing with, in this example, anxiety? We have various escape routes, don't we? By which we check out from reality. But God would have us to cast our cares upon Him. To pray and to seek Him. To find our help, our confidence, our security, our assurance. You are my hiding place, right? My shelter from the storm. My ever-present help in time of need. Uh, remember these words, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And guys, I'm not standing here before you pretending to have every detail of my life dialed in. Okay? I'm simply saying that we are to turn to the Lord first. He is our first recourse, our first resource, not if all else fails. You understand? Listen, it's human nature. You are going to trust in something. You know, you're into finance, so you're trusting in market forces. Not probably an overly wise directive right now, where we're at uh, economically. Uh, perhaps you trust in the fact that we here in America, at least presently, have the strongest military force on earth, and that's your peace, that's your security. You know, some trust in science, some trust in technology. Judah was trusting in political alliances, foreign relations, trusting in Egypt. How much better to have the heart of the psalmist found in Psalm chapter 20? Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Come on, somebody. 
Some trust in the military. Some trust in the economy. Some will put their trust in science and technology. But as for you and me, we, come on, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In verse 2, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fail and he who is helped will fall down or fall and fall down. Sorry. They will perish together. Egypt was a strong nation known for their wisdom in warfare. God says, you've forgotten my wisdom. Did you see it there uh, in, in verse, coming out of verse 1? But those who, he's saying, woe to those who don't seek the Holy One of Israel or seek the Lord. He, he is wise as well. God says, you've forgotten my wisdom. The fact that though heaven and earth will pass away, my words will never by no means pass away. I, I love that passage in the book of Numbers it says, God is not a man that he should lie. Uh, translation, every man is a liar, right? Let God be true and every man a liar. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken? Uh, guys, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. And will he not make it good? In other words, as we read here, God will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. And so the idea here is that when God promises to do something, ladies and gentlemen, we use the phrase, you can take it to the bank. You know what I'm saying? When God promises to do something, he will do it. Um, Egypt, on the other hand, by comparison and contrast in our text, was full of promises they could not, they would not deliver on. They were men and not God. Their horses were flesh, not spirit. And so God is rebuking them for trusting in the arm of flesh rather than the spirit of the Lord. And again, we do this, don't we? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the church. When it comes, ladies and gentlemen, victory in our lives is found in another section of Scripture we read like this, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I'll give you another reference out of the Psalms. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord. Family, I trust that you are picking up on a theme here. And for the, at the risk of redundancy, it's not like God is saying you should never go to the doctor, you, know, you should never exercise common sense. He's saying that you should find your help and your hope in Him alone. Now, 
In verse 4, for thus says the Lord who has spoken to me, as a lion roars and a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. God says, you might look to Egypt, but I'm trying to tell you, your only deliverance is coming from me. You might look to rationalize or find your way uh, drifting toward the world, but God would say, look, your only deliverance is coming from me. He is our deliverer, our ever-present help, yes, in time of need. And Isaiah says, as a lion roars and a young lion over his prey, he will not be afraid of their voice. The picture is of a lion standing over this young lamb, right? And all these uh, shepherds gather around it, and they're all yelling, and they're hooping, and they're hollering. They're trying to unnerve the lion. They're trying to rattle the lion into retreating. But the lion's not intimidated by the shepherds at all. He's standing there. He's poised. He's prepared to do what he has to do to defend what is his. And God is saying, the enemy does not impress nor intimidate me at all. They may gather around Jerusalem, make all kinds of threats, hoop and holler. God says, but I'm standing over you. And I will fight for you. And I will fight for this city with the ferocity of a young lion, like a bird diving down to protect its young. You and me, we may find ourselves terrified. I'm just telling you, God's not worried at all. Verse 6, return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, look at it, sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. And then Assyria shall fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword, not of mankind, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Now, we spoke last week about the fruit of repentance. God is here, verse 6, calling them to repent, to return to him. And the evidence of their repentance would be getting rid of their idols. For you and me, the evidence of repentance would be doing away with, getting rid of anything that would stand between us and a relationship with the Lord, with the Lord having the highest priority in our lives. And so God was going to rescue them. He says, look, I'm going to rescue you, so you return to me. Okay? which they did actually for a season. Uh, then they fell back into idolatry again and a little bit over a hundred years from uh, here, that's when Babylon, you know, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, they would lead them off into the Babylonian captivity, find Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and all of that. That would come into focus about a hundred years from where they're at now, give or take. 
But here's the take home, you guys, from this section of scripture. And we'll see this fulfillment of verse 8 and 9. I, I, I was going to linger on it a little bit, but I'm not because we'll see it in chapter 37 there where he says, where he says, you know, they shall fall by a sword, but not, not of a man. You know, we're going to see all of that. But in verse 4 and 5, God tells them what their future reality will be. And then he says, that should morally, ethically, and spiritually impact their lives presently. Verse 6, they should repent of their sin and return to him. So beginning there in what? Verse 4, he begins to tell them what's going to happen. And then in verse 6, he tells them how they should respond to that, how that should impact and influence them. In other words, here's the idea, guys. Future reality should impact our manner of living presently. Do you understand what I'm saying? The future reality should impact and influence the way we lead our lives presently. Peter put it like this. He said, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Guys, that's the future reality. Therefore, now it comes into practical application since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be presently, you see, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God? So that should be the impact upon us presently. Future reality should impact or influence, should have a direct effect on how we lead our lives presently in holy conduct and godliness. Okay. Chapter 32, beginning now here in verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. Now, guys, I have mentioned to you this in times past. I'll say it again as a refresher, a reminder. One thing we always need to keep kind of in the back of our minds when we're studying prophecy is that prophecy can kind of act uh, like a rubber band. You know, it can stretch way out. We call it prophetic telescoping. It can zoom way, way into the future and then it suddenly snaps right back. Uh, it jumps back and forth. There are what we call foreshadows and then fulfillments. And here in chapter 32, this is what we're seeing. The first eight verses are going to speak to a foreshadow, a historical event that would take place, uh, and a future fulfillment. So one kind of points us toward the other. Then in verses 9 through 14, it snaps back. Isaiah's talking in his present day. Beginning in verse 15, he starts looking down the prophetic pike again into the future. Now, he's been speaking of the Assyrian invasion. But when we get here in verse 1 of chapter 32, he's looking past all of that into the future. Now, some speculate that chapter 32 may have actually been written before chapters 30 and 31. And it's, it's certainly possible because we know that Isaiah's writings are not strictly chronological. We know there's no, there's no debate in that. It's a known fact. But they speculate that Isaiah wrote of the king reigning in righteousness during the beginning of his prophetic career 
under, when he came into his ministry under the wicked king Ahaz, okay, and uh, looking forward to where they would be in 30 and 31 under the godly king Hezekiah. Now, again, this is possible because we read of Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 18 that he trusted the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were there before him, or nor who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Man, what a wonderful testimony to have. I mean, would you agree? Why would you like it said of you that there were none like you in all of your family lineage, either before you or after you, because you held fast to the Lord. You did not depart from following him, but you kept his word. You did all that he commanded. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to have said of you? I mean, that's an impressive statement to memorialize anyone. And that's what we read of Hezekiah. He reigned in righteousness. Others think that this refers to Hezekiah's uh, great-grandson, Josiah. He was a godly king as well. You can read of him in 2 Kings 22. But guys, for as interesting as all the speculation is on the historical foreshadowing, what I want to do is focus our attention on the future fulfillment. Because this is most certainly pointing us to a time when Jesus... The king of kings will reign in righteousness over all the earth throughout his millennial kingdom. What does it mean that he will reign in righteousness? Well, guys, it means that, listen to me, when Jesus is on the throne, we don't have to worry about corruption in the government. <laughs> we don't have to worry about bribes. We don't have to worry about special favors to sway the ruling of the court. He will always and only do the right thing. Guys, Jesus is not concerned with public opinion polls. He's not worried about what it takes to keep people happy. He's concerned with righteousness and truth. And notice, he's going to have a governmental body with him. Princes will rule with justice. Wow, who will these princes be? Oh, I'm looking at them right here today. It'll be you. It'll be me. We read in Revelation chapter 5, the church singing a new song, worshiping before the Lamb, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have, come on, somebody give God praise. Have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. Check it out. And we shall reign on the earth. Think about that. I think oftentimes we lose sight of the fact that the Lord is preparing us now for some role, whatever responsibility that we'll have then. And we go through these trials. We go through these tribulations and circumstances and pains in life, and sometimes we just have no idea why. We can't see the big picture. Somehow, you guys, some, in some way, the Lord can use those things to prepare us now for the plan that he has for us then. He's always moving in our lives with a mind toward the eternal. We think about the temporal. The Lord is thinking eternal. 
you will be ruling the earth in some capacity with Jesus Christ. I mean, how incredible is that? It's amazing. Now, in verse two, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. Guys, when Jesus is ruling the earth, eyes will be open, ears will hear. In other words, people will see the Lord for who he is, and they will hear the word of God in truth. And things will be as they are intended to be. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary place. I read that. I thought of my own son when we were out there in the desert, uh, Vegas, and uh, we were hiking this long desert trail, and my, it was hot. It was like the classic scene when the sun's just beating down, and you're like trudging through the sand, you know? And it was like there, there was rest. There was need. Guess what? Guess what we did? We found a big rock, and we got in the shade of it. And we just, there, there was cooling, there was refreshing, there was renewing. It kind of got you where you were ready. You know, there was a reef strengthening. Now, of course, Christ fulfills all these things. And, and it could just be a reference to the way Christ is, you know, the, 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 how he's going to be uh, moving and ministering and the fulfilling that there will be there. But guys, it could just as easily be a reference to our, our role under his reign. But here's what I want you to realize you don't have to wait for Jesus to come back to be a source of shelter and security and refreshment for others. Okay? Yes, we find rest in Jesus, but God would have us learn to refresh the souls of others right now. Guys, I guess the question, if I was to bring this down to an application for you and me, would be, in what way do you contribute to others? I want you to think about that. In what way do you contribute to others? Are you one who is continually pointing out what's wrong? There you are, you're droning, you're draining people. Or do people find you a refreshing source of encouragement? of building up the good things that God is doing in them and then working with them to strengthen those things that need attention. I'm encouraging you to seek to be the one that when people see coming, they think, awesome, put your name there. You know, awesome, so-and-so is here. Man, this is gonna be great. Rather than, oh, great. So-and-so is here. You know. He says, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. <laughs> I love this because essentially what's being said is people who speak first and listen last will knock that off and gain a true understanding. I mean, look, okay, here it comes. Time for transparency. A show of hands. How many of us have fulfilled this proverb? He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. 
I fulfill that on the regular, man. But all that's going to be a thing of the past. In that day, everyone will come to understand each other. I mean, real communication. I mean, won't that just be wonderful? And obviously, not only is this a reference to what will happen practically, but spiritually. In other words, people will understand God's word and, and communicate it clearly and accurately. And it'll be that source of refreshing and encouraging and strength that's so desperately needed, you see. Now, in verse 5, the foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness. His heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied. He will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. Now allow me to put this in a nutshell. When Jesus is reigning and ruling over the earth, when righteousness reigns, when communication is clear, when understanding is accurate, things will be seen and understood for what they truly are. Here's what I'm saying. When Jesus is on the throne, no one's going to be falling prey to gaslighting. Propaganda won't even be possible. Uh, the mask of hypocrisy will be removed. No one is going to be able to put up a front and pretend to be something that they're not. If someone's trying to take advantage of others, uh, pretending to be generous and really do something for them, when in reality they're trying to take something from them, pursue their own gain, Isaiah said, that's going to be plain. People will see that for what it is. The New Living Translation translates verse 5 like this. In that day, ungodly fools will not be heroes. I love that. Scoundrels will not be respected. In other words... Character, motives, ungodly methods, they will all be exposed and judged for what they are. And this essentially circles us back to that principle, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. You know, they cause people to question reality. They call good evil and evil good. None of that's going to fly when Jesus is on the throne. People won't be able to spin their motives and, and make, you know, uh, someone look like the bad guy while the bad guy is held up as a hero. Exactly like our news media handles almost every situation today, yeah. They, they spin the motives of the good guy and he becomes the villain and then the bad guy is held up as some sort of victimized hero. This is not going to happen when Jesus is on the throne, you see. Okay, so moving forward here, uh, when now Isaiah is going to come back to where he's at. Uh, presently, not that that didn't apply again historically, but it was a remember there was a foreshadow. We just talked about the f ultimate fulfillment, uh, but now he comes back to his day and he has this warning 
to this lax mentality, this um, rebuke for some women specifically who are careless and, and confident in their idolatrous culture. Look at verse 9. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days, in other words, he's telling them when there's going to be some stuff coming down the pike. A little over a year from now, you will be troubled, you complacent women. For the vintage, that is the vineyards, will fail. The gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves and make yourselves bare and gird sackcloth on your waist. Now quickly here. I am not certain why he calls out women specifically. I, I, I just don't know. Historically, obviously, there was something going on that he was dealing with and addressing. What I can tell you is that typically the moral restraint of women is like the last line of defense in a corrupting society. And I'm not in any way, guys, I'm not trying to justify Men's behavior, sin is what it is, okay? But again, generally speaking, by the time you are seeing women in a society flaunt themselves immorally, that's a sure sign of a people who have lost their way. And Isaiah is here rebuking them for a false sense of security, being at ease and feeling good about things. Maybe they were good presently economically, but morally, spiritually, he says, man, in reality, you should be rising up. You should be uh, basically discarding your comfortable clothing and, and, and putting on sackcloth in, in repentance, readying yourselves to, to, to receive from God, you know, because things were going to get bad. He says, man, right now you're kind of resting on your laurels. You've kind of hit cruise control because things are so comfortable, but it's, it, it's coming. And you need to be readying yourselves in repentance. And to me, this sort of has overtones to what Jesus was talking about when in speaking of the last days, he said, you know, even as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. And he was speaking of people who were marrying and giving in marriage and caring about business as usual, and they were just oblivious. They'd hit cruise control, they'd grown comfortable, and they were oblivious to the fact that judgment was coming. And that's sort of the overtone that's found in this passage. You guys are on cruise control. You've grown comfortable in your own corrupt culture. But man, you need to be in sackcloth and ashes. You need to be readying yourself in repentance because I'm telling you, judgment's coming. Now, in verse 12, people shall mourn upon their breasts. The idea is the beating, the, you know, the, for, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. In other words, when Assyria comes through, they're going to ransack all this stuff. You're not going to have access to your crops. It's all going to die. Uh, on the land of my people will come uh, up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. 
Again, the ransacking, the ravishing, God would use these tough economic times to kind of rattle their cage and wake them up. Happy homes, palaces. In other words, no one's going to be exempt from the economic strain that would weigh on them. In other words, a rude awakening was in store for them all. Are there parallels? Perhaps. Let's look at verse 15. Underline this. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Guys, we're not too far from finished. Stay focused with me. But let's note again how that God can take what the enemy means for evil and use it for good. God would take these tough times, uh, the invasion of the enemy, the ravishing and ransacking of their land, and he would use it to lead his people to repentance and prepare them for the outpouring of his spirit. And when God pours out his spirit, note it, total transformation. But let's be sure and notice the very first word of verse 15. It's a big one. It's an important one. Until. Guys, tough times were simply a reality for the people until God poured out his spirit from on high. The idea here, guys, is that nothing can affect true change. Nothing can bring lasting fruit or genuine transformation apart from the spirit of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Nothing can bring lasting fruit Genuine transformation apart from the Spirit of God. Bountiful blessings would come with the outpouring of God's Spirit, but until such times, there would be no such thing. I want to cut straight to the chase here. This is exactly what we desire in our lives personally, in this church body, in this community, where we're at nationally, and we would beg God globally. You know what I'm saying? That God would pour out his spirit, bringing life, fruitfulness, and transformation. Perhaps you're at a place where your own life seems dry, fruitless, barren. There's thorns, there's briars, there's all this stuff. No real fruit to speak of. Cry out to God that he might pour out his spirit upon you. Guys, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I do this on the regular. I ask God to pour out his spirit upon my life to lead me in the way that I should go to open my understanding that I might comprehend his word. Guys, I don't want God to sprinkle his spirit upon me. You see what I'm saying? I don't want him to kind of drizzle his spirit upon me. I want God to pour out his spirit in an overflowing abundance upon my life, upon my home, upon my family, upon this church body and beyond, that he might gain and glean much fruit and that we would become more and more fruitful for his glory. And then finally, and I don't know who's closing. Is it, is it you, Ab? All right, so we're going to read this last little section. Let's turn our attention to verse 16. 
And then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. For the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in a quiet and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down, notice circumstantially, on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters and who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. By the way, uh, here in verse 18, we see the same words used that were used previously when Isaiah was rebuking the complacent women. He speaks of dwelling secure. He speaks of resting in quiet places, something he rebuked the complacent women for, but he's saying it's a good thing in this particular section of Scripture. What's the difference? Well, here's the thing. God has no problem with you being at rest. God has no problem with you being secure and having peace. The problem is what we rest in. You see, we're to find our peace in Jesus Christ through the outpouring of his spirit, not this pseudo peace and complacency found in this world. Peace I leave you, Jesus said. My peace, not as the world gives, you see. There is a false sense of peace you can find in the world. But the work of righteousness, look at that. I love that verse, verse 17. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness shall be quietness and assurance forever. Don't you love that? Hail may come down. The city may be brought low in humiliation. People, God's people aren't exempt from tough times. But there is peace in the midst of it. You, you live above your circumstances. Your peace isn't found because of your circumstance. But in spite of your circumstance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, it goes back to that old adage, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. The hail's coming down. The city's being brought low. All these things are happening circumstantially, tough times, uh, tribulation, whatever the case may be, you see. But I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope, a guaranteed certainty, a concrete reality. The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance for a little while. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. Forever. Forever. Amen? Amen. Father, that's our prayer. We long for the fruit that results from the outpouring of your spirit. We're asking, oh God, you pour out your spirit upon us. That you would search us. That you would see what wicked way may be in us. And that you would lead us in the way that we should go. And I pray, God, that our hearts be eager to repent. That your spirit would rest in power. And, and your peace would be upon our lives. Father, with regard to all that we've thought through and looked over today, I just, I pray, Lord, that when we find ourselves in that situation, a season of struggle, that we not resort to worldly ways or familiar rationale, but that we seek you and we honor you with the fullness of who we are.
I'm telling you guys, peace, quietness, and assurance, that sounds so much better than conflict, noise, doubt. And those are the kind of things that reside in the human heart apart from Jesus Christ. Conflict, uncertainty, fear, doubt. But Jesus wants to give you peace. I don't know, perhaps there's been trouble, there's been turmoil in your life, in your heart. It's readied you to repent. You're at a place like, I'm ready. I'm ready to be done with this. I'm ready to repent of my sin. I'm telling you, God wants to pour out His Spirit on you. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him and be saved. And so if that's you, if the Lord's speaking to your heart today, and today is a day of salvation for you, I'm going to encourage you to not close your heart, not harden your heart, not turn your heart away from God, but that you would turn your heart toward the Lord. You would open your heart and be saved. Believe on Him. For God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son for you, that if you just believe on Him, you'd never perish, but have everlasting life. There's great peace in Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to pray for you. I just ask you to just show me who you are. You can just raise your hand. If I see it, I'll say so. You can put it back down. But I just want to give you a second to say, you know what, man? That's me right here, right now. I'm ready to receive Jesus Christ, to turn from my sin. Is this moment for you? Don't miss it if it is. Okay. All right. So, Father, we just pray that your word would stir in our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to have that disposition of being on fire for you, greater love with you, that we might bring honor and glory to you. Thank you, Lord, just for your goodness, and we thank you for your faithfulness to meet us here and minister through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, why don't we stand to our feet? guys may the Lord bless you and may he be with you uh, may he pour his spirit out upon you and may his peace rest upon you and if you have any need for prayer we're encouraging you that as we dismiss it you would make your way forward and just let us pray for you whatever your need may be uh, guys, be praying for the fellowship. We've got some things in the kind of in the brew in the background that we're praying about and thinking through. Maybe adding a little section of building to the to the present building that would make for like a little foyer, a little cafe, some fellowship areas, some good you know aesthetic appeal from the front, some uh, outdoor use space for the fellowship, and some access to the children's ministry is a little more readily available, and just some good good things. I meant to try to have a pr little like a presentation for you today just to like a little graphic to show you I, I wasn't able to get uh, to, to get it for you but as soon as I have it I will if you're not a part of our um, Facebook community encourage you to be, be there as well and uh, if I get it this week or something I will put it right on there so you can see it so I'm super excited about it I think it'll serve a lot of needs that we have currently and it'll be a blessing uh, to the body as well. And so I just, but I'm telling you that now so you can start praying, Lord, you know. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of reasons that you can think, wow, is this the greatest time to do that economically? Probably not. 
but it, then why would we do it? Well, if the Lord leads us to it, then we'll do it. We're not afraid to move forward in faith. We just want to follow the Lord's leading. And so that's where we're asking you to be praying for all of that. Okay. So, uh, Father, we just pray that you would go before uh, our day and our week. And Lord, that you would establish our steps and uh, ordain our thoughts and that our fellowship would be sweet, edifying to one another, glorifying to you. Uh, again, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And uh, we just say, have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Blessings to you guys. Have a wonderful day.